Good evening. James is alive. That's a good thing. Archie's with us. That's always awesome. Ah, it's good. We are in Isaiah chapter 16 this evening. Um, <clears throat> I would encourage you to continue to be in prayer for uh, you know, all of the ministries. If you can grab a bulletin, you have a list of ministries that this church is supporting directly and indirectly. Um, you know, we uh, are involved in some of those ministries, doing some of those ministries, financially supporting others. Others, people in this church are supporting, you know, and those missionaries come here and speak and share with us. So you know, get that list and pray. And near and dear to my heart, CRD, all of those, you know, um, residential drug rehabilitation programs that, you know, I work in and others work in and the jail ministry. Um, there are uh, now, last night, uh, uh, there were 16 guys uh, that came down in the first service. So I do two services. Um, so, you know, you think about that in a jail population of um, 47 guys to have 16 of them coming down to the jail ministry. Um, so, you know, our enemy hates that and uh, wants to do everything he can to stop that. So be in prayer, uh, you know, that uh, the Lord would continue to protect us and provide for us, watch over and continue to make those things possible. So let's turn our hearts uh, to the Lord and pray about some of those things and uh, pray for our time in the Word. Father, we thank you very much for your love and your work in our lives and the way that you minister to us. I pray, Lord, that as we work together as a church, that you would continue to bless uh, these areas and opportunities that you've given us, Lord, and that you would make them uh, fruitful, <laughs> especially, Lord, in ministering to a lot of these people. It it doesn't often result in so much a great fruitfulness directly in our midst. These people, you know, that do, uh, only a percentage of them do, but those that truly do surrender their lives, they go home to other locations and uh, families and communities. And I just ask that you would... Keep your hand upon them. Keep your hand upon us. Guide us as protect us as we do these things. Provide for us that we could continue to reach the lost souls. I think of what you're saying there in Luke about you know leaving the 99 and going after the one, and how much uh, heaven rejoices over that, which in contrast tells us how much hell is appalled by him. Lord, as, as we turn our hearts to your word right now, I pray that you'd make us all the more effective ministers, that you would break us in humility, and that we would have the heart to submit to you and allow your working in our lives, that uh, we would be surrendered to your will and your desires. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, in Isaiah chapter 14, we're going, or I said 14, 16 is where we are. Um, we're uh, going through a series of judgments that the prophet is declaring, and they are Israel, which is the ten northern tribes of Israel gathered into the north, and then to Judah, the two tribes there in the south, and then the surrounding nations, uh, that are going to come against them and then experience their own judgments because of various sins that are involved in those countries and those cultures. And so uh, presently, as we're coming to this place, uh, he's talking to Moab. So uh, if you you know remember 
<coughs> the um, uh, nephew of Abraham, Lot, who had escaped out of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and then had the incestuous relationship with his two daughters. And one of the children born to one of his daughters was Moab, and the Moabites were the descendants thereof. And God forbids them uh, as Israel to have uh, anything to do with Moab. And that has to do with uh, their pagan idolatry. It isn't so much to do with other uh, circumstances. They turn uh, to a great sinfulness. I reminded us as we looked at this before uh, that um, you know, God's grace is seen in it also. You have Ruth the Moabitess who comes back into the land, is accepted into what becomes the family line of King David and ultimately Jesus. So the grace of God that uh, even in something that he pronounces judgment upon, he simultaneously shows his grace uh, toward them. And, and you see some of that here. So in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 16, he says, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. So Moab, uh, you know, Isaiah is saying that they should resume their payment of tribute to Jerusalem. In Second uh, Kings chapter three, uh, verses four and five, uh, Misha, king of Moab, uh, had paid tribute up until the death of King Ahab, and he stopped at that point. He, he developed sort of a, a strength that uh, left him in conclusion that I don't have to do this anymore. You know, we've done this for all this time and paid. Israel, and by now, uh, you know, our need to show our reverence toward them uh, is over. And God is now pronouncing his judgment and saying, you know, one of the key elements is uh, you should restore what is rightfully belonging to essentially me, is what God is saying. You know, you're paying tribute uh, to Israel because you as a people have come out of Israel and your rebellion and mistreatment of Israel causes it to be that now you're going to be under taxation. And as God is making this proclamation, one of the elements that he's saying is this area that you're failing in, you need to cut that out and restore what I've said is judgment upon you. As you move through these things, it's important for each of us to you know, do some self-application and understand how the Lord might speak to us and the things he would say to us and to take things to heart. It's not easy to, but as he's correcting us, receive the correction and follow through. So in verse 2, it says, For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest, so shall be the daughters of Moab, in the fords of Arnon. So confused, weak, you know, vulnerable, a bird thrown out of its nest. Uh, the prophet is painting uh, this picture. Uh, submit yourselves to Jerusalem and its king again in order to receive God's protection is what the prophet is saying to them. In verse 3, he says, take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcasts. Do not betray him who escapes. So here, Isaiah is saying to Moab, you know, along with his tribute, along with honoring the people of Israel and the king of Israel and the capital of Israel, as they come under attack and they're fleeing out of Israel, I want you to shelter them. I, I want you to accept them in. Many times as you know, nations get attacked, even in modern times, and they flee into their neighbors' uh, countries, those people come under attack from those countries that they're fleeing into. And here the Lord is saying in regard to what's about to take place for the nation of Israel, and particularly Judah there in the south, close to Moab, 
is that as uh, the Assyrians and then subsequently the Babylonians come down out of the north and attack and Israel is dispersed out of the country and they flee across the borders into Moab, the Lord is saying to the nation of Moab, you want to be, I want you to be ready to receive my people. And you got you to think about how impossible this is uh, for these people to understand, you know, that God is predicting something that in their mind is impossible. It's not even going to happen. You know, the thought that, it, you know, Assyria is going to become this powerful influence, certainly the thought that, you know, at the time, Assyria has a certain degree of influence, but the, certainly the thought that Babylon is going to become a world power is, you know, way out of sight for the people who are receiving this prophecy. So the fact that it's going to come true and this message is coming to them well beforehand, you know, many years beforehand, and then it begins to transpire, it's going to ring in their head that, oh, we were forewarned about this, uh, you know, and, and that you can hear in the earlier statement that they've rebelled against Israel, the king of Jerusalem, they're not paying tribute anymore. So, you know, once you see them falling under the vulnerability of attack, why would you then have an even more compassionate heart? You know, if you're already living in rebellion to them, when they start getting attacked, then the tendency is going to be like, well, they deserve it. You know, and they're being forced across the border. Well, we'll just, you know, participate in the persecution. And God is saying to them, you're going to have to contend with me before this is done. You know, the, the prophecy is actually very gracious. The fact that God is forewarning them this is going to take place, the supernatural aspect of that should stand as a marker. No one but God could foretell the future. So if this starts to take place, like even if you're, you know, in your human tendency wanting to take advantage of it as a nation, the fact that God has prophesied and forewarned them, they should take that to heart and avoid, uh, you know, the human behavior that would beset us to uh, take advantage of someone in their weakness. Now, <clears throat> in the statement of not betraying those who escape, Isaiah wanted Judah to be um, a place of refuge and protection for Moab under their judgment also. So this whole idea of uh, you know the church and, and the view that we have of ourselves, I years ago was with a group of pastors and one of them uh, was very angry about not wanting to minister to people who were breaking the law. You know, he's saying, well, you know, what if they're currently, you know in this kind of legal trouble and that and this and you know everybody in the room was sort of astonished at like like isn't this our job you know aren't aren't we supposed to be helping people and uh you know i, I i'm uh, kind of flabbergasted to to realize that that's happening more and more and more that the church is becoming a place where you know it doesn't want certain people in their midst you know, uh, Calvary Chapel, Bangor, and you know, as we were praying earlier about Calvary Residential Discipleship and Resting Arms, some of the churches that, you know, we've been trying to partner with, um, they're making statements about, um, you know, we, we, you guys do that and we'll help you do that because uh, we don't want those people here. And, you know, how sad is it that, that's the mentality of the church to not want to shelter those who are in need. You know, this is, this is going to become a reciprocal thing. Moab uh, is going to need shelter for, from Israel. Israel is going to need shelter for, you know, from Moab, for Moab. They're going to be fleeing into one another's countries as these attacks come upon them. The Lord wants us to have this open heart of graciousness and forgiveness. And if we just have a legalistic approach to our faith, then it ends up being very sinful, even in our own religion. 16.4 says, Let 
My outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, from the extortioner as at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy, the throne will be established and one will sit on it in truth. In the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteous. So that idea again of let my outcasts dwell with you, Moab. You know the change of focus. Uh, you know going from Israel sheltering Moab to now Moab sheltering Israel. In uh, verse three, uh, now Moab is asked to receive the outcasts of Judah. Some some people think that Isaiah 16 verses 4 and 5 is actually an end times prophecy of how Moab will be a place of refuge uh, for the Jews as they're fleeing the wrath of the Antichrist and the abomination that brings desolation. They're you know close at hand and they have that sort of ancestral bond and God encouraging them. So, you know, still lying ahead, uh, that is quite possible. Revelation note takers, Revelation 12, 6, 12, 13, and 14 uh, talk about the people of Israel fleeing away from uh, the Antichrist as he's pouring out his wrath on uh, believers and Jews uh, as, you know, he's taken power as the world leader and the end times and the description that's given you know of messiah himself there you know one will sit on the throne the tabernacle of david judging seeking justice and hastening righteous that really can only refer to the messiah so you know this seems to be pointing to the fact that look israel is going to be fleeing they're going to need shelter and soon at hand the Messiah is going to sit on the throne. So, you know, you, sort of a cautionary thought to them of, you know, as you approach the end times events and Antichrist is on the throne, Israel's being persecuted, you welcome them into your midst. Know that their king is soon going to unseat that Antichrist and sit upon the throne, rule the world, and then you're going to have to answer to him as to whether, you know, you have actually cared for his people or not in the process. So it's an interesting uh, sort of examination. I personally think that it is yet future in uh, some of its fulfillment. So 16 verse 6, he says, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and of his pride and his wrath, but he, but his lies shall not be so now this is a sort of an interesting verse because moab is minuscule in regard to the other nations that are around them they're not big historically uh you know they they've never been a world power so the idea that they're filled with pride and and the things that the lord deals with in, in these three verses you know, if if you're, you know, those that I've studied who are real historians, all of them remark on how remarkable it is that Moab is filled with pride because they're so insignificant. Like, like, what do they have to be proud of? Why are they so, you know, if you're Assyria in this great picture, I mean, it's kind of understandable. You know, if you're Babylon this world empire and power, you kind of go, well, that makes sense. And then he, the Lord suddenly makes this judgment against Moab for their overwhelming pride. And you kind of stand back and scratch your head and go, you know, what do they have to be proud of? I think that uh, that's a great commentary on the human condition because, you know, we commonly associate pride and being prideful with those that have great abundance, power, wealth, influence, capabilities. And honestly, it's the most base people that are very often 
you know, just as prideful as someone who has everything at their disposal. It's just, I don't mean to keep dwelling on jail ministry, but it's astonishing to sit in there and talk to people and they just go on and on and on about themselves and their prowess and their capabilities. And then you have to say, and is that what brought you here? You know, I mean, like, <laughs> why are we sitting in this room having, you're wearing pumpkin orange, you know, I mean, and yet filled with pride, just seething with pride. It's, it's not confined to, you know, a certain segment. It, it is a, a sinful human condition. And here, you know, the Lord talking about the, the sin and the judgment that's coming about Mo, against Moab, this is the first of where he very directly says, and this is the issue, is the pride. So we've heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath. But his lies shall not be so. Therefore, Moab shall wail for Moab. Everyone shall wail for the foundations of Ker Hereseth. You shall mourn. Surely they are stricken for the fields of Heshbon languish and the vines of Sibma, the Lord of the nations, have broken down its choice plants, which have reached to Jazer and wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out. They are gone over the sea. So again, you know, Moab's sin was pride, you know, small and insignificant nation. And uh, small can be just as consumed with pride as the great are. You know, it's extremely proud in his uh, description here. And, uh, you know, the number of things that the Lord describes, you know, referring to uh, their judgment that was going to come, you see the finality of that judgment uh, unfold in Jeremiah chapter 48, verses 1 through 13. The Lord actually brings the judgment upon them. Uh, one of the things that they were extremely proud of was their vineyards and their wine. They they were just, you know, they don't have anything else. They could always point to their vintage and talk about how the world was so covetous of their very choice wine. Well, you know what? If you're being crushed by, a, you know, like a grape in the end, it really becomes very insignificant. And, you know, so many people do that. They hang their pride up on one particular asset, one particular resource, one particular thing, and it's to the ruin of everything else in their life. They, they don't recognize uh, how the Lord is uh, dealing with them. So uh, the prophet, you know, sees the futility of his advice at the same time as he's saying these things to them and uh, knows that they're going to be broken uh, in their humility and uh, receive the judgment. Verse 9, therefore, I bewail the vine of Sibma uh, with the weeping of Jazer. I will drench you with tears, O Heshbon and Elel, for the battle cries have fallen over the summer fruits of your harvest. So it, it's, it's a little awkward um, in the way that Isaiah shifts so rapidly, but he's literally now himself personally mourning over Moab. So, you know, as a prophet of Israel, you know, your mind might not automatically be geared towards that idea that, you know, this nation who's, um, you know, been a hardship for Israel and, uh, you know, God is so full of pride and God's now pronouncing his judgment upon him. You know, you almost might have the mindset like the prophet of God would be ready and excited like, yeah, and God's going to crush you sort of attitude. And as he begins the process of delivering that message, he just falls to weeping for them. He's just broken hearted over the judgment that's going to come upon them. And, and he actually has quite a bit uh, to say 
about that, how he's, you know, drenching you with my tears. Uh, gladness is taken away and joy from the plentiful fields. In the vineyards, uh, there will be no singing, nor will there be shouting, nor treaders will tread out wine in the presses. I have made their shouting cease. And uh, that statement, uh, most of the commentaries agree that the Hebrew language indicates that Isaiah is actually going to be forcibly making people of Israel stop rejoicing over the destruction of Moab. So the idea that you know, as he delivers this message of judgment and Israel and Judah are hearing it and the people are excited like, thank God Moab is going to you know, get their due. Isaiah is there crying over Moab and saying, don't talk like that. He's stopping their rejoicing. He's, he's making them cease from that celebration over their enemies. And you see that, uh, that attitude throughout the scripture, that God doesn't rejoice in the destruction of the wicked. You know, we get the sort of cartoon sense that God is floating in a cloud with a lightning bolt, you know, laughing his head off as he just, you know, thrusts lightning bolts through people. And that's absolutely not God's character anywhere in the scripture. He very specifically says he takes no joy in the destruction of the wicked. He's brokenhearted over these things. The prophets that God says are truly attuned with his heart, you know, because you have prophets like Jonah, who when God comes and says, I want you to go to Nineveh and forewarn them of the destruction of Jonah, is like, forget that, I'm going the other direction. And, you know, then, uh, you know, once he gets spit up by the great fish on the seashore and goes in and tells them nine to 40 days and Nineveh is going to fall. And now he's sitting up on the hillside waiting. You know, it, it, I guess I'll detail that a little because uh, they worship a fish god. And, you know, God arranges it so that a fish swallows Jonah and spits him up in their midst. And so the prophet, you know, emerges out of a fish who they worship saying, you got 40 days and God's going to kill y'all. And they all repent. And Jonah is ticked off. And he literally, I'm paraphrasing everything, but he literally says, I, that's why I was going the other direction. I knew you were merciful, God. I knew these people might repent. You're going to forgive them. I want them all dead. And God rebukes Jonah and says, there are more than 180,000 children in this city that can't tell their left hand from their right hand, and you want to kill them all. That's not my character. You don't represent me accurately, is what the Lord is saying to Jonah. Throughout the scripture, those that are truly attuned to God in harmony with him are broken hearted over the judgment even of their enemies. And here you see that he is crying and he's demanding, I have made their shouting cease. I, I want you to stop celebrating over the enemy's you know, destruction. Therefore my heart shall resound like a harp for Moab and my inner being for Kir Hiras. You know, he's going to they just have this song of mourning in their destruction. And it shall come to pass when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high places that he will come to the sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. Because Moab is worshiping false gods, they go up to the high places rather than submitting and coming to Jerusalem, which isn't far. They could come and they could worship. There is the court of the Gentiles, right? They could come and worship God. They're refusing to submit to God. They're refusing to pay tribute to the king. They're worshiping. They're pleading. Now the judgment starts to come and they're calling out. They're going to the high places and wearying themselves and, and begging their gods to save them. And then once the judgment has come and they turn to the sanctuary of God, it's going to be too late. You know, as far as deliverance, individuals at that point will find the mercy of God. But once God's wrath and punishment has been unleashed, 
there's not going to be any salvation for them as a nation. Very reflective, if you think about it, of Jesus, right? Because he's there in Jerusalem, and he's about to be crucified, and he knows that the religious leaders are going to stand in front of Pilate, and Pilate is going to offer them actually three times, but two real distinct times, he's going to offer to release Jesus. He's going to say, I found no fault in this man. And then he's going to stand and say, it's our custom to release to you at this time of the year, one of your choosing. So, you know, we could, we could release a prisoner. And they say, we don't want this man to be king over us, give us Barabbas. And Barabbas, the scripture lists as a thief, an insurrectionist, and a murderer. They want a thief, an insurrectionist, and a murderer rather than the prince of life. And there, Pilate asks them and says, you know, this man hasn't done anything wrong. What do you want me to do with him? They chant crucify. He says he's an innocent man. They say his blood be upon us and our children. 70 AD, Rome swoops in and slaughters all of the occupants of, of Jerusalem, including hundreds of thousands who have flooded into the city to try and escape the onslaught of the Romans. Jesus stands and weeps over the thought of that saying, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under his wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Matthew 23, 37-39. Jesus is brokenhearted over the knowledge of the coming judgment against Israel. I, I'm brokenhearted over the coming judgment of this nation without question because, you know, it's going to affect us and our children and grandchildren. It's, it's a horrible thing that is on its way to a very rebellious People. But that judgment is also coming to many nations of the world, enemies of our nation. And it is a heartbreaking thing to consider that those people are going to experience God's wrath. It needs to be a very sobering thing for us all. So, um, Verse 13 of chapter 16. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all that great multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. Now, I would encourage you, uh, you know, to obviously always dig in to the backstory and uh, you know the history and the writings and the archaeological findings of all of this stuff and just I love to see people being serious students of the scripture this is a chapter of some contention and in particular this passage because he says within three years and then all of the scholars want to argue from this position about whether Isaiah is accurate on anything because they have trouble figuring out where does this three years fit in and was Isaiah right in making the prediction and the timing of that destruction well here's the thing we don't know the order of these things we don't know when it was written and then when it actually transpired. All of these writings were collected later and then actually assembled. 
So it wasn't as though Isaiah put all of these writings together, you know, as the Lord laid it on his heart about Moab. Oh, well, hey, let me write all this stuff down about Moab. And that gets filed away. And then, oh, let me write all of this stuff down about Damascus and Syria that we're about to read. And that gets filed away. So later, the scholars put it together. And then they want to argue about, you know, when did Isaiah start to write? And was he accurate as to when? Well, here's the thing. If you don't trust the scriptures, then the whole thing's going to start falling apart. What we know is this. Isaiah predicted the downfall of Damascus. Guess what happened? Downfall of Damascus. I mean, who would have thought? You know what I'm saying? Or Moab, rather. It, it, God predicted it. It happened. The, the argument, you know, a lot of it you can learn and understand fairly easily. This is the best one that I was able to discover. Apparently, King Sargon of Assyria conducted a major operation against the Arabians in 715 B.C., and it is thought that he devastated Moab and route to encounter those tribes, which would have fit perfectly into that three-year window. So, you know, you can move it elsewhere, but then you got to start shifting timelines along the way. You know, I wasn't there, so I can't tell you exactly when the prophecy was written and then exactly when the destruction of Moab took place. What we know for certain is the prophecy was written and the destruction of Moab took place. So I encourage you to not confuse yourself too much over that. So uh, this prophecy would get uh, to the Moabites. It was written and proclaimed to the people of Israel. Okay, So for some people, that's a problem. Like, oh, well, God makes this proclamation, but... You know, Isaiah wasn't a prophet inside Moab. So isn't that sort of unfair? Well, it did get to them, okay? But the prophecy was more given for the nation of Israel. So that as they watch it transpiring, they understand the surety of God's word, right? We read many things in the scripture that pertain to the world around us, and the world around us is not paying any attention to those things. As we sit here and we study them in detail, oh, it ministers to us. You know, we're about to start reading about Damascus in the next chapter, and most of the people in Damascus today are unconcerned about what Isaiah chapter 17 says. As we sit here, it stands as a very distinct marker, especially this week and what's going on inside Syria and Damascus. So, take it to heart. These things are written for our benefit. Isaiah 17, verse 1. The burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. I sort of did a sermonette Sunday prior to teaching uh, you know, the whole message that I was teaching out of Genesis about this very thing, because last Friday, I think I'm right in that, last Friday, Israel launched uh, an attack, an, an air drop, uh, an air assault against Damascus. Um, the targets were um, weapons depots, that were inside Damascus headed to Hamas and Syria. They had come apparently, and I've read a couple reports, so I don't know how accurate I am. Apparently they had come from Iran, were deposited in, Israel, in uh, uh, Syria, in Damascus. Uh, Israel had been tracking the whole thing from its inception. And, and, if you, if you pay attention to how things develop for Israel, what you'll notice is they let their enemies spend and exert as much energy as they can, and then they hit them, right? It's very difficult for them to recover and recoup. You know, if you see what they're developing early on and you go hit them early on, then they just sort of you know, restock and begin the process all over again. If you let them carry it out all the way 
to nearly the end and then you destroy it then they lost all the money and the you know personnel and the resources that were involved in getting it all the way to that point and then they got to go all the way back to zero so you know bringing it to the point of distribution to uh, Hezbollah and uh, their enemies inside Syria including Iranian troops which are still there uh, took place uh, this week as they uh, bombed them. So this is the burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aurora are forsaken. They will be for flocks which lie down. No one will make them afraid. The fortress will also cease from Ephraim, uh, the kingdom from Damascus, the remnant of Syria. They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. In that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane, and the fatness of his flesh will grow lean. It shall be as when the harvest gathers the great or the grain, and the reapers of the heads, that's the heads of wheat, with his arm, and it shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rephium, yet gleaning grapes will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bough, four or five of the most fruitful branches, says the Lord God of Israel. So several things uh, within this proclamation. Um, Damascus, um, there's little argument that it's the oldest city in the world. Extremely ornate, extremely uh, beautiful. Uh, even with the uh, civil war that's going on in Syria, most of the nations involved, they use it for hiding, but most of the nations that are involved um, are relatively respectful of not destroying Damascus. So it's sort of like, to a certain degree, a no-fire zone. You know, at least, you know, there aren't like heavy bomb drops and a lot of destruction because it's got this ancient historic, you know, sort of um, stick to it, and they're they're protecting it and preserving it in the process. Um, it has experienced destruction in wars and conflicts in the past, and some have tried to assign those historic battles and conflicts and damage to this prophecy. But, I mean, this is pretty detailed of how it's going to be a ruinous heap. It's going to be unoccupied. It's going to become a place for flocks, you know, sheep and goats. It's, it's not going to be a place, uh, you know, of tourism and grand beauty and often visited, you know, occasions. It's, it's going to experience... A, a desolation in it. God simultaneously shifts over to including this discussion of Ephraim in it, and that's northern Israel. So northern Israel, Ephraim being the most prominent tribe in the ten tribes in the north, God often refers to the northern ten tribes of Israel as Ephraim collectively. He'll refer to all of those ten tribes as Ephraim of the north. So God shifts the focus and discusses uh, Ephraim in the north also so that the attack has come in the past, particularly at this time that Isaiah is speaking to them. They had Assyria come down out of the north, attack straight through what is now Lebanon and descend through Syria and attack, you know, and destroy portions of Damascus and attack Ephraim in the north. So you have that uh, fulfillment that occurred then, but like we've talked about many times, prophecy at least has a dual fulfillment. When the prophet speaks, there's an occasion that's going to happen in time very close to him. He's, he's forewarning of things that are going to transpire in, you know, close proximity time-wise to where he's speaking. 
then as we study the book of Daniel and particularly the book of Revelation, and we start talking about the end of human history, a lot of these things we start realizing are pertaining to much farther away. So they have the close and then the far fulfillment. So as Assyria and Babylon are dealing with Israel and they come down and deal with Judah in the south also, they just do a, a direct you know, southern descent straight through these nations. And while they hit Syria and Damascus and bring a certain degree of destruction there, they're really aiming at Ephraim, the ten northern tribes, and they bring great destruction and captivity, which probably is what he's talking about, about how everything is going to be wiped out. This harvest that he's talking about more pertains to the people because when Assyria comes at this point into Ephraim, this is the great captivity, and they just take everything they want. Now, the gleanings that are left, there are a couple views on that. I think that the best one is that they leave some of the nobility in place. You know, these few grapes, these few olives in the upper branches, you know, that, uh, you know, would be left there. There are those that argue the exact opposite that there were people who were base and undesirable and the you know invading armies didn't want them they just discarded them left them so the few that are left behind are perhaps you know the cripple and the halt and the sick and the lame so there would be people left in the land but they're basically insignificant is you know, how the Assyrians thought of them. You know, just take the massive amount of people that you can enslave as labor and take them back. Just leave all of those helpless that are never going to be of any use to you behind. So whichever way it is, there are very few people there remaining once Assyria has passed through and brought its great uh, destruction upon the land so you can see uh this whole thing god's you know bringing his judgment uh, you can look in second uh, kings 15 29 and second kings 16 9 uh, describing the fulfillment of those things so as they're in kings and chronicles describing how these things actually transpired so this is the spiritual message that comes but then the historians that were documenting these occurrences taking place, you can find that in 2 Kings 15, 29, and 2 Kings 16, verse 9. So there is also uh, the modern dealing of Israel with Syria. Uh, particularly, Syria had occupied the Golan Heights, and they used it, as a sniping position and um, as shelling positions up until 1967. And that escalated into a full-scale invasion, and Israel went up and took the Golan away from them. So it is, you know, in the modern mindset, it's, it's Syrian territory, but Israel just ripped it out of their hands and said, you're not having it back. You know, we, we can't live below this elevated mountain range occupied by Syria that's just constantly killing us from those elevated positions. One of the things that um, took place was that um, the Mossad had an agent uh, working inside Syrian intelligence, and he convinced Syrian intelligence that the men who were uh, occupying the um, shelling positions and the sniping positions were just under too much duress. The, the, it was way too hot. The scorching heat of the Middle Eastern desert, they really needed, he convinced them, to plant uh, vegetation around um, you know, their headquarters and their huts. And so they 
the good idea. You know, these guys are up there in the heat and the elevation and just really suffering. So they planted all these palm trees, all of this vegetation around every single one of their sniping positions and their shelling positions. So when the full-scale invasion came and Israel was then flying their sorties over uh, to do their bombing runs, they just told their pilots, yeah, just target everything that's vegetated. And anything that has a tree, just blow that up. And uh, so they were very easily to, you know, able to eliminate. It's just interesting that you know, their enemies were like, that is a good idea. You know? <laughs> plant, plant trees all around our snipers. Smart. Thank you. Yeah, it is hot up there. We should do that. So turned out to be, you know, the uh, site marking for all of the pilots. So again, that that was uh, occupied by Syria, the Golan Heights, up until 67. During the Six-Day War, uh, Israel takes it back, and uh, they've refused to uh, allow them. The UN still refers to that region uh, as occupied territory, that it's Syrian territory and that Israel occupies it. Israel says it's ours. It doesn't, doesn't belong to anybody. Um, one of the political financial hotspots about it is they've found massive oil reserves there and they've begun drilling. And on top of it, uh, they've used American contractors to go in and do the drilling and set up the rigs and start to take the oil, which is like huge. Like it's it's like some of it, from what I've read, is like world record wells that they've found there. Well, uh, Russia, Iran, and Syria um, are saying that's a war crime because uh, under the conditions of war, according to the UN. Uh, you can go into a country, and if they have uh, existing oil wells, you can take uh, all the oil and product from those locations and use them for your nation, uh, not just your army that's there, but you can even send it back to your nation and use it during the period of war. But um, if it's inside their border, and you invade, uh, you can't go there, discover resources like uh, precious metals or oil or things of that nature, and begin mining processes to receive to retrieve them. So Israel having taken that away and saying, no, it's not yours, it's ours, it's, that's now inside our border. Syria is saying, no, that's ours, and you're simply occupying it. The UN does not recognize ownership, so they're saying this is actually a war crime. That not only is Israel there, but we've involved ourselves in it because we're there as American companies doing the drilling for them. So it's a hot-button issue, and it's a current hot-button issue because of Russia's presence inside Syria, the civil war, um, some still insist, and I talked about it a little Sunday, that um, the, all of the chemical weapons um, that, well, and I guess I, I have no verification for that, but um, there are some that say all of the chemical weapons that previously belonged to Saddam Hussein, which were brought out of Iraq uh, during this last invasion, were purchased by Assad and are currently in massive cash stores uh, inside Damascus. And uh, so some people actually think that that's what's going to lead to the eventual destruction of Damascus is that once allied forces with Israel recognize, oh, that's actually warehouse locations of chemical weapons, they're just going to bomb and destroy uh, those places, which, you know, Israel is uh, very much accustomed to doing that. They don't really confer or look for the approval of anyone else. You know, they like it because they do have to deal with the political backlash that comes. But for instance, when Syria uh, was that 96 was was building a nuclear facility just across the border, you know, it was there one day and then it was gone the next. You know, the whole facility, just big crater the next day. And, uh, you know, as people are picking up the fragments, 
they're saying Israel did this, and Israel, you know, like five days later is going, I've got no idea what you're talking about. So, you know, eventually they admitted, yeah, you know, we made a big crater over there, and what are you going to do about it? So, you know, we're probably, possibly looking at similar things uh, happening along those lines. So, uh, I got to get through this. 177, uh, in that day, a man will look to his maker and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. In that day, his strong cities will be forsaken, bowing in uttermost branches, which they left because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. So, you know, this really seems to be especially pointing to, um, you know, something in the future because God is saying if this, this occurring is going to cause people to recognize who God is. They're going to depart from idolatry. They're going to get rid of the work of their hands, these molded images, these things they looked at, even, you know, this idea of their strong cities, you know, the things that they'd hoped in, the things that they'd trusted in the past. And God will cleanse us that way. He puts us through the difficulties, the challenges, and the trials. We don't even realize sometimes I'm trusting in something other than God until he's crushed it. And then we go, now what am I going to rely upon? And you realize, you don't realize until that moment how much you have been leaning on something that God didn't want you to. That, that's very you know, common for God to work that way in nations' circumstances and in individuals' circumstances. He, he sends the forewarning. He puts the message out there. He pleads for the repentance. But when it comes down to it, okay, let's just get rid of that thing. So that... The heart turns toward God, and proper worship is restored. So uh, 1710 uh, says, Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold, therefore you will plant pleasant plants and set out <coughs> foreign seedlings in that day you will make your plants to grow, and in the morning you will make your seed to flourish. But the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. So the Lord's judgment, you know, when he brings it, you know, to bring their hard work to nothing, you know, both literally and figuratively. The harvest is going to be a heap of, of ruins. Uh, Haggai, the prophet in chapter 1, verse 6, says, You've sown much and bring in little. You eat and do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. He who earns wages earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. That is a common expression that many people use. You know, I just can't get ahead. I just can't. It just seems like the more I work, the more I fall behind. It just, are, are you cooperating with God? You know, it isn't, it isn't so much a punishment, right? You know, in, in all of these settings, God is saying there is a natural law that is constantly attacking you. And if you don't have my protection, then you're just going to be contending with that all the time. If, if you are submitting to me in your life and with your resources, then I'll provide a protective barrier between you and those things that just want to consume everything that you have. It's been amazing to me over the years uh, to just learn through the process of ministry that God alone is my provider. It's not anything else. You know, I, I, I do that. I trick myself 
I get all involved and oh no, you know, I just so many different times I've had different jobs and different work and different things. And, you know, you see something sort of like changing or shifting or suddenly going away. And you're like, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? And then you realize, wait a minute, God's been my provider all along the way. You know, and, and you know, I, I'm, I'm simplifying that and making myself sound heroic, right? I mean, there is the whole flailing like a Muppet thing that you go through where you freak out. And then you realize, okay, I'm making a fool of myself. God is actually in control. I, I can calm down. God's going to be, you know, he's going to see me through this thing. And he does. You know, God is taking, go ahead, plant. No, you've got exotic plants you're going to plant this year. You know, a totally agrarian society, right? This is, this is their money he's talking to them about. You plant, you harvest, you sell, you trade. This is your wealth. And God is saying, let's make all that go away. So that you realize, I'm your provider. Not anyone else or any other thing. I'm the one who's providing for you. God wants his people to worship him. He wants them to ab abandon the things that are leading them astray. He's doing this, right? Because how did this section open? You've forsaken the God of your salvation. So now let's get rid of the things that you're relying upon so that your heart might turn back to me. It's interesting how we don't notice how we deceive ourselves. God has to get our attention. You've abandoned the God of your salvation. You've forgotten. You've forgotten who your God is. That's, that's uh, a pointed statement. Uh, how quickly we drift. How quickly we forget. 17.12, woe to the multitudes of many people who make a noise like the roaring of the seas and to the rushing of nations that makes a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations, verse 13, will rush like the rushing of many waters. So other nations are going to come against Syria and Israel like a flash flood that can't be stopped. And God is saying, you know, woe unto you. You're going to come. I'm going to use you. But there is going to be judgment. 13 continues by saying, but God will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Then behold, at eventide, trouble. And before the morning, he is no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. So, you know, God can use sinners like Assyria and Babylon to bring judgment against the nation of Israel. And as they just come crashing down like this flash flood. And you, some of you guys have lived in locations where flash floods occur. And, you know, I remember we had uh, Greg Zima and his wife here years ago sharing the gospel with us. And they had this big RV and uh, trailer. And uh, he was showing me uh, um, they'd had the RV for like uh, over a year. And uh, he showed me they had to replace all of this underneath here. And all of this had to be cut out, and this whole back end had to be taken off the RV, and then the front end of the trailer, and they had to re. And I'm saying, like, what happened? Like, this much? Did you roll this rig over? Like, how in the world did you destroy, you, you know, this RV and this trailer this way? And he's like, oh, well, you know, he, his wife was driving, and they were in uh, Arizona, and hit a massive rainstorm. And, you know, slow the rig right down. You know, this is a house on wheels and wipers on. And she's driving real slow. And, oh, the rain lets up. You know, it was intense. Couldn't barely see for a little while there. And continue driving on down the road. Well, all that water collected up ahead of them like an hour before had come down through a wadi and just ripped the road out. So she's now cruising along at like 50. And comes to a spot where for, you know, about 100 feet, there's no road. 
There's just rocks and gravel. And, you know, when you're doing 50 and you just steer off into the wilderness with your RV, the ruin that comes, you know, <coughs> the flash flood is going to come in. It's going to devastate Israel. Everybody's going to be horrified about all oh, the Assyrians and the Babylons. And God's saying, hey, calm down. I'm going to deal with them too. Those, those guys are going to have to answer to me. Yes, I'm currently using them, but that's because you've forgotten the God of your salvation. Oh, man, what a condemnation of this nation and the church today. You've forgotten the God of your salvation. The church has turned to everything else, everything else, rather than God. And, and everything we were called to be, you know, when Jesus said, you're, he said you're salt and light, but when he said you're the salt of the earth, right? You know, the preservative, the disinfectant, the thing that creates flavor and creates thirst. We're, we're supposed to be salt. And he says if you've lost your saltiness, you're not worth anything. You should just be thrown away. If we're not preventing the decomposition of our culture, if we're not, you know, washing away the things that have infected, if we're not giving flavor to life and taking away the blandness that plagues people, if we're not making people thirsty for the gospel of Jesus Christ, then what are we doing? We've forgotten the God we serve. And Jesus says, then you're good for nothing. You should just be thrown away. Whoa, that's like, you know, everybody wants to think of Jesus as like so pleasant and nice and kind all the time. Can't we just keep him the baby in the manger? You know, why is he going to start flipping money changers tables over? Because that's the God he is. He comes and says, you need me. And if you're paying attention to anything else, then I'm going to wreck that until you're paying attention to me. It's a gracious thing that he does. Because everything else will poison us to death. Everything else we turn our attention to will kill us. I'm grateful for the way the Lord turns my attention continuously back to him. Prone to drift, right? Bind my wandering heart to thee. You know, fetter me, literally handcuff me to yourself. I pray the Lord does that for each of us. Amen? Amen. Well, we'll pick up with 18 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. I mean, if we're not in heaven, we're supposed to get next week <laughs> that would be good father we thank you lord i i take a moment of selfishness and thank you for protecting james i pray that you would use us lord we we submit ourselves again to you and lord maybe some of this has corrected our own hearts tonight Lord, help us. Help us to be men and women. I just follow you. Just in simplicity, like the sheep that you've called us to be. We'd know the voice of our master. We would love the pastures you lead us into. And just with that gentility, we would follow and experience your gracious provision and protection. Watch over us. Keep us. Until we're together again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.